I love 710, uh, mainly because uh, I know a bunch of you, and uh, you've proven yourself to be lovable. <laughs> Not so much you, Kendrick, but others in the room for sure. Now, Corey's, Corey's one of my favorite guys. I had the opportunity to uh, have Corey intern and work with me for about a year uh, before he became the pastor here in 710, and so Corey is someone who I love dearly, and I'm so happy that I can be here to give him a break. Uh, so I would also ask you to view your participation tonight. If it's good, awesome. If it's not so good, thanks for participating and giving Corey a break, because that's what we're doing tonight. He said that we're starting a new series tonight, and it was centered, uh, Stabilizing Rhythms for a Destabilized World, which is a really fancy way of saying, how do we live in this crazy world? And so tonight, uh, I'm going to take an opportunity to talk to you about this idea of Sabbath. Sabbath is one of these things that is a deeply biblical idea, and yet if you're in the church or been around the church for any length of time, you probably uh, have never actually practiced with any regularity something like the Sabbath, and yet when you go to the Bible, you'll see that the people in the Bible are practicing it all the time. In fact, they're practicing it religiously. Uh, one of my favorite authors uh, is actually dead. Um, those are the best ones because they can't disappoint you. Um, his name is Dallas Willard, and he writes a lot about these ideas of spiritual disciplines and how to practice our life in a way that's intentional before God. And he has this great quote that I'd love to start uh, tonight with. This is what he says, We live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. I think that's really true. The world in which we live assumes that if you are skeptical, and I don't even mean generally skeptical about God, if you're skeptical about everything, politicians, your neighbors, the people that you live around, what people are doing in their life, if you're skeptical towards that, if you're a cynical person, that probably means you're smart. If you're a generous person, if you're a person who believes the best about others, if you're a person who believes in God, then you're probably not so great. You probably don't have things figured out. Now, I'm assuming that if you're here on a Tuesday night sitting in this environment, you probably put yourself in the category as being a believer, or at least someone who's vaguely interesting in what it would, interested in what it would look like to believe. Here's the problem with doubt and belief. Sometimes doubt hides in commonly held beliefs. What do I mean by that? There are undercurrents in our culture and in the world that we live in that tell us logical things about the way the world works, and sometimes within those commonly held beliefs that are logical, doubt hides. What do I mean by that? Let me, I'm going to read you a few quotes. These are not uh, from, I don't think any of these people are dead, so they probably can disappoint us, but I'm going to give you some of their quotes. Here we go. The first one is a, a guy named Gary V. Does anybody know who Gary V is? There we go. Gary V is the king of hustle. Uh, this is what he says, entrepreneurship is bigger than a career. It's ambition, grit, and hustle. It's a live performance that lights up your creativity, a sweat session that sends your endorphins coursing, a visionary who expands your way of thinking. Gary V, you feel amped up? You ready to go? That's right. I'm gonna, I'm, this guy's older. You probably, maybe, anybody know who Henry Rollins is? If you're into like, punk in the early 80s, Henry Rollins. He's an actor and an activist and a poet and uh, was a lead singer in a really 
edgy punk band in the 80s, uh, and he's known as a pretty smart guy. And here's what he has to say. If you have any idea what you want to do in your future, and if you're sitting in this room and you're in the young adult category, this probably factors into you. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my future. He says, if you have any idea at all what you want to do, you have to go at it with monastic obsession, be it music, the ballet, or just a basic degree. You have to go at it single-mindedly and let nothing get in your way. You hyped? Good. Uh, and then here's somebody you probably know, Elon Musk. Here's what Elon said. Nobody ever changed the world in, a four, in 40 hours a week. What he's saying is if you work a basic job, if you put in the expected amount of time, that's great. But you're going to amount to pretty much nothing. This really begs the question of us. These are ki the kinds of things that you might see posted on social media. You might go to your Instagram feed and you're seeing people saying this stuff and trying to be inspirational about what it looks like to live a meaningful life, to change the world. And the real idea is this. If you work hard enough, if you put in enough sweat equity, you can shape the world to be a world that you want to inhabit. Nobody's going to give it to you. Nobody owes you a darn thing. Get your hustle on. You can make the world happen. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard something like that? No? Abel, you hear stuff like that? Good. Great. Here's the question that we really have to wrestle with. As we, we live in a world in which this seems like really good advice. Like, yes, I can buckle down and I can work hard and I can manifest a world that I want. I need to do that. The question that we have to ask, though, is do we live in a world of scarcity or do we live in a world of abundance? What does it look like to live in a world of scarcity? I think those guys that we're quoting live in a world of scarcity. And I'm going to use the Bible to show you what it looks like to live in a world of scarcity. Uh, I'm going to read to you a little section from Exodus. Uh, and if you're familiar with the story, th this is what happens. I'm going to actually back up so you don't read that, so you'll listen to me. I know how that works. Uh, so the story of Exodus is Joseph as a young man gets sold into slavery and he goes to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, a whole bunch of things happens, but he becomes a pretty important person there in Egypt. And then his family later when there's a famine comes to Egypt, hopefully finding food and who they find in charge is Joseph, their brother who they sold into slavery. Uh, and Joseph's really a cool bro about the whole thing. So he's like, you know what? You guys come in. It'll be great. I'll forgive you. We'll get you food. And his family settles in Egypt and over generations, they have kids and marry people and have more kids and more kids and they begin to grow and their family of outsiders is growing within Egypt. And pretty soon Pharaoh, who like Joseph and his family dies and a new king comes up and he says, guys, we got a real problem on our hands. I don't know who these people are and there's so many of them and they're going to take us over. They're going to need things that I need because I live in a world of scarcity. So here's what his plan is. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. See, Pharaoh lived in a world of scarcity. Pharaoh believed that there was not enough to go around for him to get what he wanted and for the Egyptians to get what they wanted. And so he knew what to do. He was going to operate in a way that forced these Egyptians into slavery to provide for him 
what he really wanted. The abundance that he believed was only for one person, him, and he created slaves out of them. Now, if you're familiar with the story of uh, the slaves in Egypt, eventually God sends Moses to them and, and they're set free and they end up out in the desert. And what God does in that place is he begins to tell them about who he is. They're coming out of this slavery and God's explaining to them the kind of God that they now live with. I'm going to read from you from Psalm 50. This is the kind of God that they live in. He says, for all the animals of the forest are mine and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and all the animals of the field are mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you for I have all of the world is mine and everything in it. This is the difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. Pharaoh's in a panic. What am I going to do? If these people want something, I need it. I'm going to enslave them, force them to work and grind and hustle to provide for me. And yet then when they're relieved from his rule and they come under God's rule, God says, what do I need you for? I own everything. I own the cattle on a thousand hills and that little fly that just flew into my face. I don't need you. I don't live in a world of scarcity where I'm worried if I'm going to have enough and I need to manipulate you to produce so that I can get mine. I already have everything I need. It's the difference between a world that has scarcity and a world that has abundance. And then he begins to describe for them what it looks like and how they came to be and who he is and who they are. And it describes the beginning of rest. I like the subtitle of this, The King Reclines. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2. This is at the very beginning of the story. You have to remember they've now been released from slavery and God's describing to them who he is as God and what he made in the world. And he tells them, I made everything. In six days, I created all these things, the land and the sky and the seas and the animals and then he says, this is how Genesis chapter 2 opens. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. Everything was done. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God makes, what did he make? Everything. That's exactly right. So what, what was the work he had to do tomorrow? Nothing. He had already done it all. So we have to be really careful. When we read about God instituting this rest here, right at the beginning of the story in Genesis 2, it's not like he's saying, boy, I'm tired. I put in a hard week. I need a break so that I can recharge and keep working tomorrow. He does his work and he finishes it and he rests. But he doesn't rest like you rest. He rests like a king rests. He sits on his throne and he puts his feet on his footstool, which the scriptures say is the whole earth. And he surveys what he sees. A king, the Pharaoh we see is a king. Was he, would you say he was at rest? I wouldn't. He seemed really nervous and trying to orchestrate everything to go his way. He had a lot of hustle to make sure he didn't lose what he had. When I read God here, who's created all that exists, this seems like real rest because he knows I have everything I need, and there's nothing else to do. The king rests. Because this is the reality. Freedom from slavery doesn't mean self-rule, but living under the good king. Freedom from slavery, freedom from the slavery that the Israelites experienced, freedom from slavery you've experienced in your life, does not mean that you have now freedom to rule yourself. It means that you can live under a good king. 
And that's good news. So, so I have to, when, when the scriptures describe for us Sabbath, rest as people, I just need, I want to reiterate for this. We don't rest because the king rests. We rest because the king reigns. When, when God sits down and takes a break, we go, see, we're just like him. We take a break just like he does. No, you get to take a break because he did it all. And he's in charge. And he's got it covered. So you don't have to hustle. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to grind to provide for him. He's done it all. The question that comes up when we talk about the Sabbath, uh, if you look at the Old Testament instructions on the Sabbath, there is no wiggle room for what God tells the Egyptians or the Israelites to do with Sabbath. He says, you're going to work for six days, and on the seventh day, you're not going to work. And then he describes what that looks like, because I know he's anticipating, can I uh, work in my garden? No. Can I water the garden? No. Can I bake bread? No. There's a huge list of things you can't do. In fact, he's so serious about it, he says, no one's going to work. And if they do work, stone them to death. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty harsh for like getting out and working in the garden on a Sunday or Saturday in their case, right? God sets aside Israelites and one of the markers that makes them unique as God's people is that he forces them through his law to not work one day of the week. And he makes it a radical version of not working. So the question we ask as Christians, this is the thing that every time Sabbath comes up, if I'm teaching on this, this is what people ask. So do I have to do that? Do I have to? It's a good question. If you have a Bible or you have your uh, phone and have a Bible app, you can follow along with me to Colossians chapter 2. Just to give you a little picture, this is much, much, much later than the stories I was just telling you. This is now Jesus has come. Jesus has lived his life. He has died. He's resurrected. He's ascended back to heaven. And now the church is going out into all the regions around. Colossians is actually the book on Sundays that we're currently studying uh, here at Gilbert. So if you've never been to a Sunday service, I'd love for you to come visit us because we just started this series last Sunday. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church that is a church plant he's never visited. He doesn't know these people, but it's a church plant from a guy who he helped disciple and bring to following Jesus, and then he goes back to his hometown and he starts a church. And then he comes back to Paul and he says, hey, Paul, uh, my church has a whole bunch of issues and I need you to help us out. And so Paul writes this letter to give them some instruction. And this is what Paul says, uh, if you want to get an idea of what are the problems, let me give you a hint. Here's one of the answers so we can kind of assume what the question is. Here's what he says, starting in verse 16 of chapter 2. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon celebrations or Sabbath. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial, worship of angels, saying that they had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. Then later he says, if you've died with Christ and he set you free from the spiritual powers in the world, you've been released from the slavery we just talked about, why do you keep following the rules of the world, like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Those rules were merely human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. Those rules might seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, 
and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Here's the tension in the room, in this church that Paul's writing this letter to. What you have is devout Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus, and their whole way of life has been marked by things like festivals and keeping the Sabbath and eating certain foods and not eating other foods. Now, now if you're all like that, great, you'll get along awesome. The problem comes when you invite your neighbors who don't live that way. Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, they show up in the church and they're like, you guys don't do what on Saturday? You can't eat what? But I really like shrimp. Pig's great. And it creates conflict in the church. Who's right? Who? These people follow strict rules. They must be more religious. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. In following Jesus, you've been freed from those restrictions. You have freedom to live in the way that you feel called to live. And so what he's saying, if you're Jewish and that's your culture and what you grew up in, great, keep doing it. Don't judge people who don't. If you're in the culture that came in and has never experienced these things, awesome. You have freedom in Jesus to live that way. Don't condemn them who keep these rules. Live together. Here's what it means for us. Now, if you grew up in a family that practiced the Sabbath every single week and you go, well, should I do it? Maybe. I'm guessing that's not very many of you. Most of you probably fit in the category of like, I don't really even understand what all that is. Well, good news, Paul tells you, you don't have to do it. Do I have to? No. I don't really think that's the question. Do you have to? No, that's the answer. You do not have to keep the Sabbath. Here's the real question. Should I? I, th I think it's a good, I think that's a good question. And believe me, instructing people to follow these strict rules was not easy because it's not very far after the Israelites get this instruction in Exodus that Moses goes to God and he's exasperated because he's like, these people are impossible. They don't follow the rules you gave me. They complain all the time. They think this is a burden. What do I tell them? And one of the things that God says in Exodus, I think it's chapter 35 maybe, he says this, they must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. The Lord's gift to humanity was Sabbath. And then you go, okay, well, that's old, that's old, that's old Testament. Jesus probably didn't feel that way. Well, I have some bad news for you if that was your position. This is what Jesus said. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. What ha how do where did this come from? Jesus gets confronted by the religious rulers of the day who are strict Sabbath keepers because he heals a man on the Sabbath. And they say, you broke God's rule. You can't be from God. God wants us to keep the Sabbath. You broke the rules. You can't possibly be right. And Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. If you think that we were made for the Sabbath, you've mixed it up. The Sabbath was a gift from God for us. Now, if that's true of the Israelites, and if it's true of Jesus, I'm going to submit to you, maybe it's true for you and me. Maybe the Sabbath is a gift that we've never really considered very closely. Maybe the Sabbath is actually designed for our good, and somehow we've convinced ourselves that it's a burden that we should avoid. Now, I, I'm just going to be really clear before we, because I'm, I'm getting ready to wrap up. I want to be easy on you guys. But I want to be clear about what Sabbath looks like. It means setting aside a day to not work. Why would we do such a thing? Well, 
we will always run to this idea that it's so that you can worship. And that is part of it. The problem is that we live in an environment in which worshipfulness is a detached spiritual experience. It's not something I do physically. It doesn't really benefit me physically. That's kind of the way we tend to think about it. I'm just going to submit to you, I did a little research on what it looks, what, what benefit does rest have to you? Here, this is a list that I came up with. If you rest from work, this is what to scientists say happens in your life. Number one, it reduces your stress. Number two, it boosts your immune system. Number three, it allows you to experience deeper sleep. Number four, it restores your mental energy. Number five, it increases creativity. Number six, it promotes productivity. Number seven, it increases focus. And number eight, it improves short-term memory. Now, maybe you think, well, I thought you were going to tell us a bunch of, about a bunch of spiritual stuff. And here's what, I'm, here's what I want to tell you. You are an integrated person. You are a physical and a spiritual being. And God doesn't just care about the spiritual part of you. He cares about all of you. And when he gave humanity the gift of the Sabbath, don't, this isn't a surprise. God didn't get the study in the mail and go, wow, I'm really shocked that all these benefits come. No, he knew how you were made. He knew what you needed. He knew the breaks that you needed in your life. And he knew how you would benefit physically when you took a break. And yet the world says, if you're taking a break, you must not really care about the hustle. You must not be great. You must not want to change the world. The follow-up to Elon's quote about nobody changed the world in 40 hours, he said that people that work at Tesla with him work 80 to 100 hours a week. And then he, and then he throws on this little, like, subtle guilt trip. And, and what, it's, what he said was, but they care so much about the deep work that they're doing that they barely notice. Well, what does that say? Well, if I'm not willing to give 100 hours a week to this, I must not really care about what I'm doing. I'm telling you that is a deception, and this, I, this is not the only reason that you should consider practicing Sabbath, but I'm telling you that your physical body was designed to take a break on a regular basis, and God knows that about you. I, I wanna, I'm going to read another quote from the guy that I started with, Dallas Willard. Here's, here's what he says. We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it's true. I'm going to read that for you again. We don't believe something merely by saying we believe it, or even by believing we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it was true. The challenge that we have when we look at the culture in which we live that says, work as hard as possible, throw your life into work, hustle and produce, Here's the lie that that induces us to believe, that you're in control of your destiny, and that if you don't do it, who's going to look out for you? That's the lie that it induces us to believe. And, and I'm just here to tell you, that's not the story that the scripture tells us. This is what the story of the scripture says. You serve under a king who controls and owns everything. And he cares about the minute details of this world. He cares about the birds of the field and the flowers how much more is he going to care about you, his children? He's a good dad. And not only is he a good dad, because there's good dads who are broke. And they have all the good intentions in the world, but they can't produce. God's a good dad, and he's loaded. 
He's got everything that you could possibly want, and he's got the wisdom to give it to you in exactly the measure in which you need it. That's the truth about the God that you live in. The slavery that you were released from brings you to be able to serve a good king who knows you best and wants to give you goodness and has every resource in the world to provide it for you. And if that's true, then heck yes, you can take a break. Because your break is admitting what you claim is true. God is in control, and he's good, and he knows what I need, so I can stop and acknowledge that. Your physical stopping from work on a regular basis says, with your body and with your life, I believe God says who he is, and he's truthful about it. That really just challenges us to say, okay, so what would it look like? Because this is the reality. I can establish for you that I think the Sabbath is a gift that God has designed for us as humans. We should use it. Does anybody have a regular practice of Sabbath in here? Anyone? You've been going through a class teaching you to do that. Great. Uh, Eddie, you're an overachiever. I don't know what else to raise their hand, but good job, everybody. Uh, most of I'll just admit, I typically have not. And even to this day, I'll teach this, and if you said, well, what's your regular Sabbath? I'm going to like go, look, there's a bunny rabbit, and I'll run away, because I don't really have a great answer for you. So I'm kind of challenging you with the same thing I'm challenging myself on. Here's the question. What would it look like to practice Sabbath in my life as a disciple of Jesus? Not because I have to, not because somebody's going to stone me if I don't, but because I really believe God is in control and he loves me and he's designed it for my good. What would it look like? And I don't think it's that complicated. I have steps. Are you ready? You have your pencils? Because there's three steps. You need to write this down. Matthew, here you go. Number one, plan. Number two, do. Number three, repeat. Okay? I know it's very complex. Uh, but this is really what it looks like to practice the Sabbath. Number one, you need to come up with a plan. The plan is... Uh, for instance, I'm going to set aside one day a month as a Sabbath because I want to experience the goodness God has planned for me. So one day a month, every month for the next year, I'm going to pick a day and that day is my day of Sabbath and I'm going to protect it fiercely. I'm not going to let things encroach on it and I'm going to really enjoy it and I'm really going to rest and I'm really going to rejoice in the fact that this is a gift that God has given me. What a good God he is. Planning is great. Number two is pretty key. Then actually do it. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm really good at number one steps and plans. I'm really good at planning and talking about it. Um, do it. And, and my encouragement to, to you is to really engage in it with open eyes and an open heart. God, I've never done this. This, is, this would be my approach. God, I've never really done this with any intentionality, but I believe that you love me and you're good. So I'm going to engage in this in a way that says, I want to experience that. And now I don't really know what to do. I'm supposed to rest, so here I chill. And do it. And embrace it. And then take your notebook and write down things that you experience and what what did i think about and what how did i how did i benefit from this how did it draw me closer to god how did i see him meet my needs by me laying down my tools of meeting my own needs how did i see it because this is the reality this is what happens every time i invite someone to practice spiritual disciplines alongside me i say let's try this thing 
And then we do that thing, and then we meet afterwards. They say, how'd that go? And they're like, oh, my gosh, it was so amazing. God met me, and I slept better than I've ever slept. And, oh, I had these epiphanies about how much God loves me, and I had all this time. And then it's like, when are you going to do that again? I don't know, maybe next year. (laughs) And I do the same thing. I do the same thing. So write it down. Remember what God did, and then repeat it. Because he's going to show up and he's going to do something good in the time that you've given to him. And let's be honest, resting and having a nap and listening to a couple worship songs and reading a little bit of a book and getting a little sun on your face and going for a walk, doesn't that sound nice? You could do that, right? Yeah. Why do we act as if this is a curse that God has put upon humanity? Do I have to? Nope, you don't. I would suggest that you might really be missing out on one of the great gifts that God has provided to you by leaning into what you don't have to do. The question I'd love for you to ask is, can I and when can I? Tomorrow? Great. Call up Black Rock. Savannah, let them know you're not going to be there. (laughs) You need a day off. My my prayer for you in this series, I I had a a great conversation on Sunday with some people that were practicing some spiritual disciplines together, and there there was... uh, somebody that was at the table that shared her observation as someone who didn't participate but was just there. And she said, I'm so encouraged to see that there's a community of people who are willing to support each other as they live an intentional life trying to do these things. She didn't even really know what to call it. That's what she kind of said, do these things. And that's what this community can be. And I think this next series that you're, that you're working through, starting with this, is really an opportunity for you to share with each other and say, hey, I'm going to try that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a day off. What an adventure. And then talk to each other about it and ask, how did it go? And what did you experience? And what was hard? And what was easy? And how did God show up for you? Because your experience is valuable. It really is. Your personal experience is really valuable. But when you share and combine your personal experiences with four or six or ten other people who also had personal experiences, it becomes almost infinitely more rich. And you can share in the goodness that God gave to your friend and the goodness that you experienced. I'm going to pray and ask God to be kind to us and to uh, help us to rest in him and also that the sons would win tonight. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for uh, this community. God, for the work uh, that goes into helping host this evening and to loving people and to encourage each other to live intentional lives to chase after Jesus. It's what we want to do. We want to be transformed to be more like him. God, we want to express with our lives what we believe, that you're a good king and you're in control and it's all yours. God, let us rest. And let us be rejuvenated in that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.